Hello and welcome back to the Footy Fans Podcast. Andrew here. Songs, Santo and Joe. Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, not going to lie. We recorded the podcast yesterday on Thursday. And we had a 30-minute show. It was very, very good, very well done. We cut to the points. Everything was great. First 25 minutes got deleted. Don't ask me why. Don't ask me how. We used Santo's computer for the first time trying to record. My computer was on the fritz. It wasn't working properly. And for whatever reason, you know, 95% basically of the podcast uh, is gone. Audio is gone. So that being said... The twins are away on business right now, and you know we're a man of the people. We are people of the people, and regardless if the twins are here or not, we told you guys that we will get a show out this week, and I will try and do my best to fill in. I mean, there's five minutes of usable audio um, towards the end of the show here that I might just plug in so you can hear Santo and Joe's uh, melodic voices one last time before we come back as a threesome again next week. Hopefully, everything goes uh, goes great. But for the meantime, between time, you got me. And I will try and fill in the gaps. I will try and express what we talked about um, in those first 25 minutes. You won't have the inputs of Santo and Joe, but who knows? That might not be a bad thing. So you have my my uh, my take on most of the things here. And being that this is my show for the day, I'm starting with Chelsea. And the point that I wanted to make was... I mean, I mentioned this I mean, in the audio that you can't hear anymore, but the point that I was trying to make was that I'm basically done with this team. I don't know if it is because of Graham Potter solely on him. I don't know if it's because the the performance of the players or whatever the case is. But that being said, it's just I'm so crossed between two mindsets with this team because on one end there's the club and on one end there's Graham Potter. And it's literally like the angel and devil analogy, you know, that I'm experiencing right now. On the one hand, I'm saying, get rid of this guy. He hasn't done enough to show that he deserves to be there. The results just aren't there as well. I can't see a positive outcome coming from this, from Graham Potter being there in the short term or in the long term. Because his success at Brighton eclipsed years and years. And I don't even want to say that he has had success there because all he's basically done is, yes, he's gained promotion, which is massive for the club. And that's going to provide funds for the club year after year, um, whether he's there or not. And that's that's amazing. That's a great feat in itself. But there are different expectations from being at a club like Brighton where your main goal is promotion and then just stay in the league pretty much. Now the fact that he's at Chelsea, his goal is to win trophies and to win Champions League possibly and to win the league for sure. And, you know, they've already been bounced from the Carabao or the League Cup, which we'll talk about later. I'll talk about later. United winning that. But they've already been bounced from that tournament, of course, and been bounced from the FA Cup as well. He needs to show results. And those are pipe dreams now. Like, I can't see this team competing for trophies anytime soon. Like, obviously, this year, they're going to be winless in the trophy category. But in his last 10 games, guys, he hasn't even had a positive result. He hasn't shown anything in almost 10 matches with this club. Last five games, just just for you know recency bias, last five games, three draws, two losses. That's poor. That is a poor showing 
from a club who is supposed to win every single game. And I, and I know that's not going to happen. You look at the Arsenal's, you look at the Man City's, even like you know, Liverpool is its own kind of thing. But the United's, they're not winning five games in a row. That doesn't really happen very often. Five matches in a row, six matches in a row, that would be incredible. But Chelsea's actually winless in that time period. They're winless in five. Three draws, two losses, just just terrible. But then, on the other hand, I think of Mikel Arteta, Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola, and the time it took for them to establish their chemistry, their mindset in their club. And it took at least a year or two for them to really start showing results. But then it happened. The results came. I mean, Arteta is on the way to winning the title. Let's just let's just say this is how it ends up. They're um, they're currently five points up, same amount of matches played with Man City, five points ahead, thirteen games to play. Let's just say they finish it off within a four to five year sorry within a three to four year period. Markel Arteta brings this team from not being in Europe to being back in the Europa League, very close to Champions League last year, and potentially winning the title this year. Jurgen Klopp, we've seen what he's done with Liverpool. Rocky start, yes. Took him some time to get established, but then once Liverpool was firing on all cylinders, they were unstoppable. And then Pep Guardiola, he speaks for himself. Uh, just in this, the success that he's had basically in every position that he's been in. So that's on the other hand that I'm thinking of. Can Graham Potter rise to the expectations of those managers and be given the leeway by ownership, by Todd Bowley, to actually have this team be successful in a two to three year uh, time period. I know for right now it's tough. I'm going through it with the team. It's very hard to watch each uh, each game and out. But is he there for a longer period of time than than this small sample size? Is this small sample size too small of a sample size to grade Graham Prodder and criticize him for the lack of results that Chelsea's getting? Does he need more time? Is he uh, should he be allowed to have more time? It remains to be seen. Uh, he's coming out saying now that his job is on the line. Clearly, there's been a lot of backlash from fan bases, obviously. I mean, that's that's granted with just being the atmosphere of the uh, English Premier League. But just in comparison to North American sports, which Todd Bowley is obviously very used to, the fan bases count. Fan bases matter. And I'm not saying that the English fan bases aren't outspoken because they very clearly are. I mean, I don't see other fan bases in North America, you know, not rioting, but, you know, collecting themselves outside of of the gates of the stadium and protesting. And, you know, I remember the days saying Wenger out and everything like that and Solskjaer out. Uh, those, those very well happen. But at the same time, the ownerships of these giant Premier League clubs, a lot of them are kind of behind-the-scenes owners. They might have a couple stakes in the club. They might be shareholders and they own the team you know uh, minority wise with other ownership and other groups and everything like that and they don't have a full investment in the club Todd Bowley owns this team Todd Bowley owns Chelsea he's a single person he's not a corporation he's a single man who owns this team and yes he has you know backing behind him a mandarin and staff and people underneath him that advise him but he's very well aware of the popularity of this club He's very well aware of the outrage happening right now from the fan base. And at the end of the day, it was his decision to get rid of 
Thomas Tuchel as early as he did. It was his decision to bring in Graham Potter as early as he did. And I feel like if he was to let go of Graham Potter now, he would be the one with the egg on his face. He would be he would look like a fool for how he's run this team in the first 300 days, basically, that he's been there. And I don't know if he wants to have that on his record. I don't know if he wants to face the scrutiny of that. But again, it's a business decision. You know, do you go find Diego Simeone? Do you go find Zinedine Zidane to come in here? Do you bring Mourinho back? I've heard, I've seen rumors of that. Do you bring Tuchel back possibly? I've seen rumors of that as well. I mean, I don't know. But I just feel like right now, it's a very strange time to be a Chelsea supporter just because the outcome and the, you know, the future of this team depends on a lot of different factors all coming together, whether it be the ownership, you know, figuring out what they need from this team, whether whether it be Grand Potter getting the best of his players, whether it be another player to come into the mix. They've only bought in 15 this year. Is 15 not enough? The, with the amount of players that they brought in, they can, you know, basically field an entire squad plus reserves, plus a bench, just in new signings this year since August. Does that fall on the recruitment staff? Does it fall on the scouting staff? I don't know. End of the day, this team is in shambles. They're in 10th place. And the only reason why they're sitting in 10th place with having three win- uh, three draws in their last five matches is because all the teams behind them stink. Let's be real. With the last two matches on the calendar, the 10, t- the ten teams behind Chelsea, they have five wins. Five out of 20 matches played have been wins in the teams chasing Chelsea from spots 11 to 20. And that's the only reason why they're still in 10th place. Because any other team, any other side, any other gear, any other league possibly, you have three points in your last five games, you're dropping positions like crazy. And Chelsea is kind of just staying there in that middle ground. They're a very 10th place team. We talked about it before. They're minus two now on goal differential. They were even before the Tottenham match. Last Sunday, which I don't even really want to break down. I want to get into it. Was just, it was just a complete mess. A classic with this team. They just can't score goals. That's what it comes down to. And from this point on, I mean, Graham Potter, he's already been under the microscope, but now he's going to be under a 3D microscope, if that even makes sense. Whatever, whatever microscope shows closer than a regular microscope, he's under that because... If this team fires two coaches in the same season, that's Southampton shit. That's bottom table relegation stuff from from a club. And if this team goes down to that level, then I don't know. It's going to take years and years to get out of that out of that uh, mentality. Um, just shifting gears though to the League Cup final that took place uh, about a week and a half ago now. And United picking up the win against Newcastle 2-0. Marcus Rashford being the most informed striker maybe in, in all of Europe and all the world right now currently. 17 goals in his last 19 appearances. Obviously, that does not mean every single game he scored except for two. But, you know, he can go a couple games not scoring. Then he gets two here, gets two there. Over 19 matches, he's eclipsed 17 goals. And this is... The jumping point, I think, the jumping off point for Manchester United. 
I'm not exactly sure how long it's been since our last title, uh, since, since our last silverware. It definitely did not happen in the Soul Shark era, I don't believe. It might have been back in Mourinho's time. I think they might have picked up... Did they win the Europa League with Mourinho? That's probably something I should know. Um, but they might have gotten that. But that's been at least three seasons. And for a club with Man United stature and just who they are, three is a very long time. I remember seeing an article that saying that the drought is over. The drought is over. A drought for many teams like the Chicago Cubs in baseball was like 100 years. So that just kind of puts perspective like the scale that Man U is on when a three-year drought is actually monumental in, in the world of football. But yes, they beat Man, they beat Newcastle United 2-0 at Wembley. Um, the first half saw the majority of the, of the majority of the action. Both goals came there. Second half, I honestly expected more out of Newcastle. Um, for them to be in a final, it's been a hell of a long time since we've seen them being really competitive, and they've had a hell of a resurgence under Eddie Howe. And for them to reach the final in this match and come against United like this and not really have anything to show for it is kind of disappointing just on you know on their performance. But again, just for them to be there is an accomplishment. I don't want to. I don't want to sugarcoat it. I don't want to say yeah, it's silver lining kind of stuff. But for them to be where they were, you know, six years ago under Rafa Benitez, and being relegated, and then coming back, and then going back down, and then coming back, for those for those fans, because I think Newcastle fans are probably the most vocal and most passionate fans in all of England. For them to get that trip to Wembley was was huge for them. I mean, they'll tell their grandkids about that, just to say that they were in the final again, to say that they were playing against Manchester United. Again, the result wasn't there. But for them to just be there making appearances, it's uh, it's big for the club. It's big for the the city of Newcastle. And just for Man News' perspective, like I said, this is the tipping off point, I think. I don't see this team having a downside the next couple of years. Um, currently, they're... Um, Six points behind Man, uh, behind Man City, and and they're in third place with one game in hand. So let's just say, let's just say, for for argument's sake, they get that win. It's against Liverpool this Sunday. Not a guarantee, clearly, but let's just say they get that win against Liverpool. There'll be three points, or sorry, two points back against Man City, um, with all matches you know level 25, 25 matches played, and. I think they're they're starting to claw back, and I don't think they're going to really have a title chance this year. I know some pundits are saying that, some reporters are saying that, and they're writing that. I mean, if they get that win, they'll be eight points back from from Arsenal, who I don't really see slipping the title away from themselves. Um, we can talk about that later a little bit, but I just think I think if there is going to be a race for the title this year, it will be between Arsenal and Man City. Man United might come in close; it might be a close third, or they might just show themselves um, that they're there at you know, at the table, basically. Um, just so that they're they're gonna be there to compete. But I don't see them really making a lot of noise towards the end of the year, come April, come June, when the season's really wrapping up. But this is also the first of many dominoes to fall potentially for Man U this year. This is the League Cup, uh, aka the Carabao Cup. They also have the FA Cup that they're still involved in. They have their Europa League games that they're still involved in. They're playing Real Betis, I believe, in a few uh, in a few weeks. And they have that for Europa League. And yes, the title of Hope is still there. But just to my point, it is one of four possible trophies to fall for Man U this year. 
which we haven't really seen in a long time from any English side. Because that one trophy from Man City always escapes them, a.k.a. the Champions League. Arsenal hasn't won the Premier League in almost 20 years. And they have potential as well as winning um, the FA Cup. Oh, sorry. They, oh, they're bouncing the FA Cup. They, they can win two this year. They can win, Arsenal can win this in the Europa League. Uh, Man City can win FA Cup, Champions League, and the and the league here in, in the EPL title. So they can win the treble. Man City can get the treble. But as far as Man U, they can get the four. Which, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen that done. The quadruple. Um, this is this is Ten Hag's like coming out party. I think everything's coming together. Rashford is on a new level of playing. He's finally playing the spot that he's destined to play up top as a striker. Uh, the Cavani's of the team are gone. The Ibrahimovic's of the team are gone. Ronaldo's clearly gone. With those guys in the system, he was always playing on the wing, either on the left or on the right, opposite of Martial. But this year, he has made that number nine position his own, and clearly it's paying dividends. I mean, I Erling Haaland, being as good as he is, and coming out as hot as he did at the beginning of the year, that was the big storyline from the Premier League as, a, as far as a striker standpoint or goal-scoring standpoint. But what Rashford has been able to do in the last 20 games in total in all competitions, it's just consistency at its finest. He is so in form. He had a great World Cup. I mean, forget about what happened with England in the World Cup. Him personally, coming off the bench most times and still making an impact, scoring, I think, at least three goals it was in the World Cup in his short, limited time playing that he had, huge for him. Huge boost. And again, that's coming off a European Cup that he didn't really get much playing time at all. When you have Harry Kane as your number one striker, you probably won't play very much. Unless, you know, there's dire situations where you need another goal and the striker has to come on, or the opposite where you're taking a big lead and you can kind of take risks and allow him to run around a little bit and get touches. When he came on the World Cup, he produced. As young as he is, as experienced now as he is, and the passion that he has for this club, you can't ask anything more of Marcus Rashford. And I think he's just finally getting getting the credit that's really due to him. I know he's not an underrated player. I don't think that at all. But he's just finally getting the credit you know, afforded to him that he's always deserved. And the spotlight is finally on him because he's been destined for the spotlight for years now. He's just been shadowed by players coming in on the club like Ibra and Cavani and Ronaldo. But he's the real silver lining. He's the real guy that should be taking a spotlight from this team and it's finally paying dividends for them. Yes, the addition of Casemiro was huge. He got the first goal against Newcastle in the League Cup final. He is the most perfect player that Ten Hag could have had fall in front of him back in January at the deadline. There was one glaring hole in his team. It's been there for years. It's been a defensive midfielder, someone to compliment Bruno Fernandes, someone to kind of just control the field. Pogba was there, didn't work. Matic was there, didn't work. Fred, McTominay, that experiment there, did not work. This one player falls in their lap. The most perfect guy, the most world-class player that they could find, just comes right to them, and then boom, immediate impact for this team. Now, just since the January signing of Casemiro, we're out here. 
since the January signed Casemiro, uh, let's just count off the the wins that Man U have had. Beat Villa, one. That's in the FA Cup. Beat Brentford, West Ham. Had that big loss to Middlesbrough. That was tough. Oh, wait, wait. Yeah, big loss to Middlesbrough. That was tough in the FA Cup. Um, beat Brighton. Beat Leeds. Tied Atletico Madrid. Big loss to Man City. I mean, that's going to happen. But big win against, uh, against win, big win against Tottenham. Big win against Liverpool. Crystal Palace. Oh, I'm in the wrong. Sorry, I'm in the wrong league right now. I'm in the wrong season. What is happening right now? Okay, <laughs> here we go. Scratch that. January, Bournemouth win. Everton win. Charlton win. Man City big win. Loss to Arsenal. Granted, beat Nottingham Forest in the League Cup. Beat Reading in the FA Cup. Nottingham Forest again. Beat Crystal Palace. Beat Leeds. Beat Leicester City, beat Barcelona to progress in the Europa League, beat Newcastle, beat West Ham, and now they have Liverpool. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Thirteen wins. Thirteen wins in fifteen matches since January, since Casemiro came in. I'd say he's worth every penny. And it wasn't even that expensive. He was on the cheap. Well done, Ten Hag. Well done, Man U, for finally finding your guy. And like I said, it's paying off dividends big time. Do I think they can contend this year? No. For the title. But next year is a whole different story. Next year is an entire year under Ten Hag again. Entire offseason. Let's see what he does there. Does he show up the defense even more? Does he get rid of Harry Maguire in some dead weight? Does he get rid of Luke Shaw potentially? Um, who knows? Does he bring someone else in to complement the wing? We'll see. Erickson will be back hopefully in a few months. He'll help um, towards the end of the season. Plus, we have again next year Christian Erickson. So I think, I mean, there's I don't see many holes in this team. If they can just be consistent and show up when they have to, why not? Why can't they be com- uh, competitors in the in the league next year? I don't see why they can't. As for the top of the table, very unchanged from from the norm. It's still Arsenal up top. It's still Man City right behind. Like I said, five points away. Um, Arsenal coming off a big win against Everton just a couple days ago. They'll be playing... Oh, let's see here. Arsenal playing Bournemouth on Saturday. Man City playing Newcastle as well tomorrow. So, I mean, that's a top five matchup. Um, Newcastle only having two losses on the year. Lowest goal diff- or lowest goals against in the league. I mean, they're going to be tough to play against. It's going to be at Man City at the head in that match. So that's just going to uh, give an automatic favor to Man City in the result. Arsenal at home to Bournemouth. Let's just scratch that one off the docket. I think it's going to be a big win for the Gunners. Bournemouth's just losing as well, 4-1 to Man City. So their confidence is obviously very low. I wouldn't call this a trap game. If it was a trap game, I would say maybe at Bournemouth, they might have better of a chance. But you know, at the Emirates Stadium, um, basically been a fortress for Arsenal this year. I don't see them slipping in that game as well. So I think after the weekend, it'll be most likely the same thing. Five-point difference between 
the two teams. Maybe Newcastle can pull it a result that would benefit Arsenal hugely. And Arsenal can pull eight points away, potentially, after Saturday. But then, man, New Liverpool. One of the big ones. Um, not so much this year is going to affect the standings-wise. Liverpool have 39 points. Man, you have 49, 10-point gap separating the two teams. I just don't see Liverpool really being a big competitor for this season for whatever reason. And on the Footy Fans podcast, we talked about it a bunch of times, how this team just, we don't really know what's going on. Uh, I can beat it, you know, keep beating a dead horse. I think it's the Sadio Mane effect not being there. Mane was the constant for Liverpool, I believe. He complimented Salah. He scored goals. He kind of did everything that he had to. And with Luis Diaz being hurt, with Darwin Nunez not being the player that's just going to slide into that role that Mane took and give the production that Mane gave, this team's starting to hurt and struggle. Um, and defensively, there's there's different. I think they're just getting old defensively, to be honest. Fabinho, getting older. Van Dijk, still world-class, but getting older. And <laughs> that, that guy, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, just... You know, barely defending. I, I mean, I, I can't sugarcoat. I can't say it any other way. Barely defending when he's there on defensive duties. Attacking-wise, yes. From a dead ball, from a set piece, world-class. But there's a reason why he's not a winger, and that's because I think his defensive liability is huge. I think he just has to stay back and hang more, you know, hang back more and just try and defend. Put some more effort in too, bud. And there's there's some bad screenshots that are looking that looks at him saying like, putting him basically on notice like for for poor defending just watching players go by him the game against um was it Real Madrid they played just letting I forget who it was who, who signed up scoring but just letting his player just like completely escape him off a corner kick getting a free header from basically the six yard box um not tracking back or anything not man marking very well it, it shows and again he is a very valuable player when he first stepped on the scene a couple of years ago for Liverpool Everyone was raving about him and how world-class he is. He's only 19, 20 years old, but now he's about 25, I think. And he's a veteran on this team. He's been on Liverpool as number, you know, the number two or number three, whatever you want to call him, on the game sheet. Number four, I guess, maybe number four, number five. Um, listed on the, on the position, he's been the first one that Klopp puts there every single time. And I'm wondering if his spot's coming into question, not because of his offensive capabilities, but because of his defensive liabilities. Because them giving up 28 goals, um, it's a bit more than I think they're accustomed to. Uh, it does put them in the kind of middle tier of goals against. But they've also been pretty costly mistakes and costly goals. And those are the intangibles that you just can't look at and see on paper. But it hurts, obviously. When, when you know, you, you got a lockdown defensively or you're, you're, you're nursing a tight a tight game where it's 1-1 or 2-1 in your favor and a team claws back and you get a draw out of it when it should have been a win. They have six draws in the year, seven losses. Um, it's just unvery, it's very un-Liverpool-like, very uncharacteristic from them. And from a Klopp side who, you know, he, he stresses discipline. He stresses structure on his team. And I don't know if maybe he's, you know, losing the room a little bit or whatever the case is, if he's overstaying his welcome at Liverpool Clearly, he's done enough to to stay there and to remain the manager. You know, giving them their first Premier League title in you know, thirty years, over thirty years. 
he deserves to be there still, but I'm wondering if the room is getting a bit stale with Jurgen Klopp at the helm there. It'll remain to be seen. I don't think anything will happen this year, maybe not next year, depending on how they can come back from this. But uh, let's just say he's not completely secure in his position from from my point of view. Give it a year or two with with Klopp. Um, Bottom of the table, Everton, Bournemouth, Southampton, round out your bottom three. It's funny, we talk about it every single week. It's just one win away. One or two wins away from either, either of these teams in the bottom five, let's just say. West Ham's in there as well, Leeds. And you bounce to like 11th or 12th place. That's just the parody right now of what the Premier League is showing and what they're, what they're offering. And if Everton stay in this spot, from what happened last year with Frank Lampard and you know the epic comeback that happened and the games that were on the spotlight for so long... The questions being in, uh, being put forward is United or is Everton going to be relegated? Are they not going to make it? Like, what's going to happen? Who knows? But now I think that this team is in a big jeopardy stage, and I don't know if they have enough just willpower, if they have enough pedigree to to get out of the spot that they're in. Then not having Calvert Lewin for as long as they have really hurts their team. Only scoring 17 goals this year, lowest in the Premier League. That's not just going to cut it. Uh, for Calvert Lewin being as world class as he is and producer as he is, for him to not be healthy, it it's it's the biggest understatement of all time. It it hurts. It sucks, and they're really starting to feel the you know feel the pain from that. But if there's one guy that's going to do it, it'll be Sean Dyche. Now, since he's been there, they got him two wins. The big one against Arsenal was obviously huge. Another one against Leeds a couple weeks back kind of you know helped boost morale a little bit. But then two losses on the hop. The big one against again uh, Arsenal four nil. Uh, it's never it's never good. But I think they still have enough time. Again, thirteen games to play for most of these teams. I think they have enough time to try and claw their way out of it. Again, like I said, it's just one or two wins away, and you're out. And then it's just sustaining that spot. Get a couple of draws here and there. We should probably lose. Maybe sneak out a win where you should have lost or should have died. It's a lot to ask for for a lot of these clubs. But towards the bottom half of the table, literally anything can happen. Southampton has 18 points. They've been the bottom of the bottom for the entire season. They fired both. They fired two managers that they've had this year. They can legit still win two games in a row. And just be out at the bottom three. It can happen. I'm not saying it's going to. They only have five wins on the year. 16 losses. Looks terrible. But it can happen. Who knows? They could beat Everton in any game. They could beat Bournemouth in any game. You know, get a draw against Nottingham. Get a draw against Leicester. Who, who knows? It could definitely happen. But at the end of the day, three teams will get relegated this season. When the year started, I said it was going to be Leeds... Wolves, and I think I said Southampton. I have to check the numbers on that. I'll check the, check the data. Wolves in 24 points, Leeds 22 points, Southampton, like I said, lowly 18 points. Um, Wolves safe right now in 15th, Leeds in 17th. So those two teams are pretty close. Again, one or two losses, one or two wins away, and that's going to switch pretty quickly. But as far as the bottom three goes, as far as relegation goes, we will always keep, you know, keep our eyes on it. We will always... Um, look at it the same way we basically look at the Premier League 
uh, title race because you know end of the day these these points matter these places matter big time whether you finish 16th whether you finish eighth whether you finish fourth every position matters in the Premier League whether it be money whether it be for European spots whether whether it just be for safety and bragging rights against your your neighborhood clubs and that is why we love the Premier League that is why we watch that is why we follow it I'm out of here this has been a half hour it's been a good time um, I'll see what other audio I can try and plug in here with Santo and Joe. I, like I said, there's only about five minutes of good footage or good footage, good recording that I can use for the podcast. But, um, if it's warranted, I will surely put it in here on the podcast. But again, I want to thank everyone for listening, putting up with my voice, putting up with my Chelsea rant at the beginning of the episode here. If you want to listen to the podcast, you can get us on Apple podcasts. You can get us on Spotify. Uh, this will be up on YouTube. We are posting our shorts videos on YouTube, and this is getting a lot of views. So everyone who's watching our shorts videos, thank you very much for watching that. It's a big, uh, big help for us. Thank you for liking the videos. Um, give us a like on Apple Podcasts, like I said. Give us a review, all that stuff. I, I, I know I'm, I know I'm pleading. I know I'm, I'm out here begging for it, but I can't underestimate it enough. I can't say it enough. It really does help the channel and help the platforms, you know, kind of boost our our popularity and get our get our name out there. So again, I want to thank everyone for listening, and we will chat next week after all the week's action. Ciao.